Welcome back to Inside Whitehall with me, Jonathan Gullis. And me, James Starkey. So we've just had a fascinating interview with David Linden, MP, member of the Scottish National Party, sharing his views on how the SNP work in Westminster. What did you think, James? I, I found it really interesting. I think some of the interplay he talked about with uh, the Labour Party, where the SNP is going, that kind of youthful side of the SNP, what we can look at in the future. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, what were the bits that stuck out to you as someone who, you know, goes, I was going to say go through go through the voting lobby with him. You don't. You mainly go in the other voting lobby. I don't think I've ever been in the voting lobby with David. No, I think what I was relieved of is to hear that David got into politics at 11. Uh, so it means that I don't feel uh, as such a solo nerd uh, now and it shows what a, what a nerdy breed. You feel less ge- geeky now. feel less geeky. I think it, it does probably am- amplify just how geeky you have to be to become an MP. But I actually thought the, the conversation about the relationship with a Jeremy Corbyn Labour Party and a Keir Starmer Labour Party and how the SNP work with them was quite interesting. I've certainly noticed in the chamber, both the SNP and Labour Party probably throw more punches, uh, as it were, at each other verbally than I saw from the outside when before I was elected. And it's quite clear that there's obviously that pressure with potentially a Labour comeback, but also the fact that the SNP see themselves as the real opposition. Mm. The fact David was making the point that he feels that under Starmer, the Labour Party weren't going a certain direction or they're going a certain direction. So he feels that they have to offer the alternative voice. What did you think about his point that sometimes the SNP, in that sense about being the opposition, are dragging the Labour Party to a position? Have you seen that in Parliament? Um, not that I can massively think of yet. Not one, Not an example that's clear to come off the cuff, but I certainly can see those tensions and maybe that's even better for government because I think working down in Westminster it's always felt like everyone on those opposition benches are like a united force working against you minus for example like the DUP Mm. uh, who would be seen as sort of natural bedfellows with the Conservative Party but now I think you are seeing those natural divisions with Stephen Flynn for example referencing Labour's position on certain topical issues uh, when it comes to certain votes where the SNP may push, as David said, they have done on programme motions, on money resolutions. The fact that they feel that they're the ones forcing these votes to still happen to make their opposition vehemently clear, yet Labour seem to, in their opinion, be stepping aside, I thought was fascinating. So um, I think that I think we'll probably see that more play out as we get closer to a general election, much more specifically trying to drag people on certain issues to a certain direction or get people to expose what their view what their position is and that will be also be key for the conservatives because david talked about immigration that's an issue that i'm sure conservative colleagues in the conservative party uh, that i'm a part of would obviously have to take a, a specifically different kind of line tone but what i thought was interesting is it certainly made me think about and something i'll go away and have a look at which is how will that election look like in scotland at the general election So some of the points he was making, which is a major part of the next election will be small boats. Definitely the case for you. Clearly not going to play massively in Scotland. Uh, Some of the points he was making about where they are in the economy and that Labour's moving slightly towards the Tories, which gives them some room up in Scotland. And bluntly, his belief that actually this big wave that people are talking about in Scotland for Labour, he simply doesn't believe is going to happen. And that would have a profound impact potentially on the next election, no? No, absolutely. I think it, what's interesting is that David's kind of parroting the same lines that we as Conservative MPs are getting from advisors to the Conservative Party about the election strategy. 
that this is not a foregone conclusion, despite what current opinion polls as we sit here uh, mid-March are suggesting, that actually there's still a long way to go and that things will essentially narrow as we saw they did with Blair and Major in the past. And therefore the next election is not a foregone conclusion and Scotland is not going to be the natural gateway for Labour back into government because he made that point about the constitutional issue which still sits there where the Conservatives have a clear position. Labour, as he did say, are opposed to independence but feels that they try and dodge that question rather than full-headed go for it like the Conservatives were doing where the SNP obviously have a very different perspective which is Scotland deserves its time in the sun. So I think that will be really fascinating to see how much the constitution does play a major role in this election uh, or at the next general election, sorry, and and where we go from there. I thought it was also fascinating that I can't believe they don't have pads. I, I know we said pads, so we should probably... James, what's a pad? Well, just explain what they are. I think we use spads and pads a lot in that episode without explaining what they are. Spads, special advisor. That means you're working in government for a minister, political appointee. Technically, a temporary civil servant. So you're on a temporary civil servant contract, but you are appointed politically. Pads would be a political advisor, so they would be the opposition. So the Labour shadow front bench, each of them would have one or two pads to help them in their, you know, policy making or media, whatever it might be. And I thought it was fascinating that I I wasn't aware the SNP didn't have any. I was shocked actually at that that they are relying clearly on Scottish government. Provide using their civil service to provide some information, and obviously David saying his own researcher uh, having to get across certain briefs. But essentially, so he's a shadow for a DWP. Yes. So he has to look at their policy briefings, but you know, kind of go to the oral questions and so on. He has the same resources that you do. Yeah, I just can't imagine how he does that with everything else that he has to do as an MP that I do campaigning in your constituency. Uh, undertaking casework, raising questions for constituents in the House and obviously holding the government accountable. I think that just shows how opposition is an absolute nightmare. And now it's okay for David because obviously they're never going to be the party of government in Westminster, nor do they ever want to be. But it does make you think, and hopefully we'll see it in uh, later episodes when we speak to uh, the Labour Party or Labour members of Parliament, you know, what's it like being in opposition and hopefully even maybe get some ex-Conservative MPs who maybe were in opposition and actually ask them what it was like. Well, hopefully we're going to get some spads or former spads and pads on at some point and do a kind of special advisor episode. On on that kind of resourcing point, as uh, David outlined, his researcher has to do everything from helping with his diary, providing policy briefings, looking at the week, I guess, ahead and telling you kind of what debates are on and which bits, you helping you write speeches, I would guess. Yeah, MPs kind of where taxpayer money goes is obviously controversial, touchy subject. But do you think MPs are resourced enough? Like, do you feel resourced enough when you've got to speak in a debate, write questions? Is the balance right in terms of what you've got in your offices? And you you have access to kind of a central library and a and a bit of a is it was there a kind of policy team? But- yeah. So look, I think I personally feel fine with the resources I have. I have a really great team. I've personally got I think total seven people. Uh, one part-timer, one apprentice, one who's just finished their apprenticeship and then uh, a range of staff. And I suppose... But that's split with your consti- in your constituency. Yeah, so I've got well two in people Parliament. in London and five people um, in, in Stoke-on-Trent North in Tunstall. And I feel for me that's been 
I, I suppose that's how I've used my budget. I suppose it comes to each every MP how they want their office to be designed. You could have looked. everyone in Parliament. Could have everyone in Parliament, could have everyone in the constituency. I mean, some MPs I know do, don't do have a caseworker. They do all the casework themselves and mm. do all the chamber work, which I think is incredible uh, and will take an, an awful lot of effort. So I know just how important those teams are to support you. But you are also right. The Conservative Party will have something called the Conservative Research Department that's funded through Conservative Headquarters. They also buy political briefings. Uh, you also have something which you can use your office budget into, which is the Parliamentary Research Unit, PRU. Uh, sorry for the acronyms again, everyone, mm. but that's what we use. And Labour have their equivalent as well. And you pay so much of your office budget and that will assist you with letter writing on those campaigns, those 38-degree style uh, online uh, campaigns that people fill in. So they'll give you government lines, they'll offer you different suggestions, and obviously you can then personalise that letter. And I know that's very important for my team because that speeds up response with casework, particularly when our time should be focused on those people who urgently need social housing, or have been made homeless, uh, people who are accessing a food bank and need support, people who are trying to get visas. So, you know, that's the stuff that takes hours, if not days, if not weeks, uh, sometimes to deal with. So uh, I'm, I am able to access those resources as well as obviously being a membering, member of the governing party where we'll have PPSs, parliamentary private secretaries, for those who don't know, share information from the department about what's going on and provide we'll us do an with episode internet. on those as well, hopefully. So I think, yeah, you are right. Like I personally feel very well resourced. I feel I'm better resourced than David is. Mm. And David's got a very serious job of holding government to account in a particular in the one of the largest spending briefs in the whole of government as well, in the Department of Worker Pensions. And, you know, I saw that actually in action. So I brought forward a private member's bill uh, about auto enrolment for pensions. David actually laid an amendment to that and spoke about that committee. And uh, I saw the minister, Laura Trott, as she is at the moment, uh, for pensions, offer David to meet. David said he wouldn't push it to a vote, um, but was keen to obviously force the government's hand to begin a conversation about whether or not auto enrolment, as I've put in my bill, starts at 18. He would like it at 16 oh. for apprentices like him. So he wants that conversation. And that conversation being promised and some timelines of when there'll be consultations meant that David felt that he got something out, at least a concession from government that was, we'll look at this, but it wasn't ruled out entirely. So I thought that was really uh, interesting. But again, David would have had to write those amendments, work with the public uh, or public uh, bill office, obviously research it. You know, that, that would have taken hours of his time to make sure he got that right legally, worded-wise, as well as obviously uh, whether or not that's something that has support with those stakeholders that, he engaged with and I think that's what's fascinating for me is how much he relies on those stakeholders to provide him with as much stats and facts without also looking like he's just a mouthpiece for those set organizations and using some of those think tanks uh that he referred to Joseph Roundtree Resolution Foundation as well but, but MPs get bombarded with this kind of um various campaigns so how, how do they know which ones are the you know you can only cover so much you I'm sure you must see since you've been an MP, you must have seen multiple things that you think that's a really just cause. I've got a huge amount of sympathy with it, whatever it is. Um, I'd love to try and help them. How, how You can't do that for everyone. Though, can no, you, you can't. I think, again, comes down to the reality of who's monitoring your inbox if you're doing it yourself, having things stack up, and then once a week going through all the different options available. The way in which people approach, if they just email in, that could easily get lost amongst hundreds of emails we get every day. Sometimes people call your office, ask for a meeting or for a coffee. So those type of things work. The personal touch works, I think, quite well. When people provide you specific stats and facts about your constituency, that's also very useful because that, that's something you won't ignore if you see your constituency name. So David, 
I think there has an even bigger challenge because he'll be getting lobbied as a constituency MP, but also being lobbied as a opposition to government and being leaned on to try and lay amendments X, Y, and Z down, you know, on government legislation. He's got to go away and evaluate whether that's legally sound, whether that's something that's got broad consensus, whether that's something that they can actually win on. I think that shows the challenge of opposition again. Is this a job for an MP? Is that part, do you think it's part of your job for some of these campaigns? You know, we've seen a lot of, there's, for example, in the last five years, been a lot of environmental campaigns, all, all kinds. Is it the role of an MP to pick up those campaigns and try and help champion their cause in Parliament? I think they can be. I think it depends. You've got to consider for you. And so this is something you've always said to me, James. You know, you've got your local issues. You know, you're an MP, you've got the privileged position to change the law nationally. What are those national things that matter to you? And you and I have talked about mental health campaign that we've, uh, we were underway with, with No Time to Wait. But of course, I'm doing this pensions work now. I've looked at increasing fines on landlords, for example, to work closely with Historic England. On that particular is that one. because of some landlords? Is that because your constituency? That was something that was motivated by my constituency, but something that I think just regularly came up in the chamber mm. and trying to think about, well, what can we do to bridge consensus uh, that would actually hold landlords accountable, but at the same time, obviously, enable councils of any colour politically to push forward with trying to get regeneration in their local area. So I think for me, that was... That's how I see it. But yeah, you are right. Like we should look at it. I look at them and I consider this is, is this something that I've got time? Now I'm an education guy. So education ones will always take priority because that's something that I worked in before. I've got a lot of passion for. And obviously I think that education is is the biggest way to achieve leveling up, to really change young people's lives um, for the better. And, you know, you can throw, every, you can build every shiny building and create every new job in every area. If you're not getting local people educated the standards that they can get in those jobs, earn that money to buy that, that house uh, and stay in a local area, then it's all for nothing. So I think that's where David was getting at again with Glasgow, you know, talking about the fact that he's from the area. He sees the deprivation, the challenges there. And all he wants to do is to make sure he gets that inward investment to his local area, but also has the challenge of working against the Westminster government but working with a Scottish government that has a lot of money in control and a an SNP-run local authority. And that poses all sorts of challenges in itself because local authorities will have to make decisions that are sometimes really good, you can piggyback off, and sometimes ones that are bad. That you've And because that's your own party, you've got to pick and choose, do I want to have a bit of, well, in their case, be yellow on yellow, or I'd say blue on blue. You know, And I have that same challenge in Stoke-on-Trent as well. One thing I was into, you get on quite well with David. And when was how how long into being in Parliament did you meet him? Uh, I met David quite a lot because he was he's like me. He's in the chamber a lot, and so <laughs> he's very good at the heckle. Um, and it was the first time he got me was when I stood up and I asked him, oh, must confess, a bit of a soft question because we just had some money for Stoke, and he suddenly shouted, "Answer that!" to the minister in a sarcastic manner, which <laughs> got the whole chamber laughing and made me laugh as well. And I just remember as we walked out, I said, "Oh, that was quite funny." And we just went to the tea room and started talking. Mm. And I think that's how you can bridge those kind of relationships, really. Um, I think there's an acceptance. David's one of those guys I've, I've personally got to know that understands that the chamber is somewhere where there's a bit of theatre, a bit of drama, a bit of presentation about, you know, sort of putting your political stance on issues or your uh, spin on what you want to get out there. But also, is uh, but it shouldn't be taken to the point where it becomes personal. It was like a sport. I don't want to trivialise it. It's a debating it, society. But in the sense, debating society. you accept that what goes on, you can still be friends outside. Yeah, you should be able to walk out of that chamber and not take anything personally. Now, look, sometimes colleagues may take things personally or things may get said that are personal, and that and that's never fine. 
you know, yes, I'm I'm a gobby so and so, but I always think that I've always treaded carefully along the line of playing the ball, not the man, as it were. And I think that's how it should be personally. I suppose in the last few years, I think there's more, I've seen more people, you know, that I know who would be typically conservative MPs. I've realised they get on quite well. You know, you speak to the MPs that have been around for 10 plus years. They obviously know a lot of the opposition ones quite well because, you know, maybe they were on a committee when that person was actually in government, you know, kind of Labour times. Do you think there's much more, you know, people get on than people than you see on TV? If you looked at TV, you'd think, no, Tory gets on with any Labour MP. That's 100%. 100% there's more camaraderie than people realise. There will be trips, for example, if you're a member of the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, you get a mixture of political parties on that and people are going on trips abroad to see our armed forces overseas. So that's a really great sort of icebreaker. Uh, if you're on select committees, you're spending a lot of time in private sessions as well as public and actually bouncing ideas and off one another as well. But I'll be honest, I think, I think actually post sort of vote leave which i think in the media was made very much into you're in camp a or camp b i think brexit brexit sorry yeah no no well well, sorry yeah brexit apologies sorry not vote leave obviously uh, and for disclaimer i was a supporter and a signed up member of the vote leave campaign i think for me what was i think what was challenging with brexit is it did create two camps and then with jeremy corbyn i think that further extended those camps and i and then covid came along and you had over a hundred brand new Conservative MPs who didn't even get to interact with their part MPs on their own side, let alone opposition, because we were told to stay home. So I think that actually it's probably it's probably not been as much camaraderie building, cross party working as should be because of because of those factors. And I do hope, and I've certainly tried to reach out that we can sort of improve that. And and, and you know, it's not been seen as toxic. I, I hate it when I see this. Oh, I've never kissed a Tory. And, you know, I, I certainly disagree with any conservative who ever says, oh, Labour's the opposition, we shouldn't be working them. I just think that's clownish, to be perfectly frank. I think we should be working cross-party. And actually, the House, I think, is always at its best when we're in a debate where we broadly agree on everything, but we're just probing different ideas. And, you know, I saw that. How do you get that? Because, as you said, there is things that happen already. Maybe it, maybe it's not as good as it was before. But, you know, every single day when Parliament's up and running, there are Conservative and Labour MPs on the same select committee, often both giving the government a hard time about the same issue. Uh, there's multiple campaigns that will be going on in Parliament at the Westminster moment. Westminster Hall debates. Westminster Hall debates. There'll be, camp- there'll be big campaigns that where they'll be working together. The public doesn't really see that. They just see Keir Starmer and Richard Sunak at the dispatch box. Every or, Wednesday, yeah. You know, tearing strips out of each other. That's kind of what the public see. You yeah. Know, what someone once called punch and Judy politics. Is it possible that Westminster politicians, both all parties, could show that they do sometimes work together a little bit? I certainly think it's on MPs to provide that communication using their social media platforms, going on shows jointly with opposition MPs to talk about a set issue or doing a joint interview. But I'm more interested in you, James. You're look as much as you've worked in Westminster. You're also a member of the public. What do you think? What does it look like to you? Yeah, I think from the outside it does. I think that from the outside, the really all you see is the adversarial side. So, and the kind of whether you watch politics live or you pick up a newspaper, it's government does a policy, the opposition slam the policy and say it's crazy and they do something different. I think it's really, really hard to show something else because of the, because of the nature of our system. Because if I always think, even if you look at how our parliament set up it's set up well it's you know famously 
isn't it two swords apart? Yeah, the so red lines along the floor of the uh, front benches. So that, that's that's the dist. It's set up so you can't. So you literally prevent people from having an actual sword fight. So that kind of tells you where the the setup comes from. So I think it's hard to show anything else. But I do think if you poll the public, it's one of the. I mean, surely they say this to you. It's one of the things that they want to see more of. They'll say, I want to see politicians work, work together. I mean, you talked about COVID. You remember the time I told you about that guy in the white van? I was on the phone to you. Mm. Walking around Stoke and he just pulled over the side of the road and he said, thanks, you, I appreciate all the hard work you're doing, but can you tone down the whole Labour bashing? Like, yeah, I've, you know, that's my life. You're talking about, that's like... You know. I think the public don't like... And I found that, and that, when you said to me, you should pause for a minute, Jonathan, and listen to that. That really does live with me. Like I, I will never. That's one conversation I've never forgotten. Because to hear, like, I think his name was Weirdy James as well. I can't remember. Sorry, James. Sorry, whoever it was. His name I've just forgotten there. But I thought that was a really powerful moment to hear from a member of the electorate. Look, I appreciate what you're doing. However, mm. this adversarial stuff, like, just gets on my nerves. Like, it's my life. You're, you're using as a political. Football. Exactly. That was the point I was going to make. I think when MPs are coming up with sound bites. And you I'm know, as guilty as any of them. I'm as guilty as any. Full of them. disclosure: You've done some. I was a media spad, so I was not like I'm. I'm, a, I'm adverse <laughs> to a soundbite. But when you when you you're having these sound bites for the public, it's it's real. It's like a, a relative can't see a doctor, or you know, even basic. I think in the front 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 pages at the moment is I've got loads of potholes on my street. Can't you fix them? So when it almost looks like a joke that people are kind of, you know, tearing strips in that kind of punch and duty. It's not even a kind of serious policy discussion. It's It looks like a quip. Some of that stuff, I think, really winds people up because it's like, hang on a minute, this is my life. This is, you know, can I afford to get fuel? Uh, you know, I'm going to get a job. This is the... What's my kid's school like? Kid's school like, exactly. And it's not it's not a joke. It's not just for, you know, when people are like, well, it's just part of politics. I think that annoys people. And I think it's that's like, the challenge if we go back quickly to David which is he's got a job to come down to Westminster to make the case that they shouldn't be in Westminster. At the same time, he's obviously got to then tackle a SNP-run Scottish government, which he has control over healthcare, education, and then he's talking about his council, which does fix his potholes. I think mm. that makes it hard because to his constituents, for example, does he look like he's just always engaging in punch and duty over independence when actually people want to hear about what additional funding will Glasgow Council get to fix potholes? What uh, what can we learn across all four nations of the United Kingdom to improve education outcomes? How can we make sure healthcare is something that is good, as good in Scotland as it is in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland? I think those that for me is mind-blowingly challenging in that essence. That I probably change. I don't have to worry about to the same extent because he's got that to deal with. Because where I do have sympathy, and I think you know, we'll hopefully do an episode on the lobby, which is the lobby is the group of journalists who cover Westminster, cover Whitehall. And if you called up the lobby and said, oh, you know, I'm going to talk about government policy, but I need I need, I need, need about 800 words because I'm going to do it in a really nuanced way and I'm not going to give you any kind of simple soundbite that fits into a headline, I'm not sure you'd get that in the paper. Or if you said, oh, I want to do an interview on this subject on the TV, but I'm going to need about 20 minutes to fully explain the full detail and why I'm not quite disagreeing with it, but I'm suggesting tweaks. Whereas, you know, take the SNP. You know, if they say, well, we agree with kind of 90%, but 10% isn't quite right. That's not the same as quote unquote slamming the government for its latest policy. You, do you know what I mean? No, I agree with you. And I think that's the challenge again, 
for all parties. And actually, you hear that frustration, by the way, in the chamber in debates. So I heard it from Labour MPs recently on, on the illegal immigration bill, as it's referred to, as it's court titled. You know, Labour MPs were saying, and Conservative MPs were saying, why can't we all just, we all agree that we need to stop boats. Why can't we go into a room and hash out a plan together that we can get consensus across the house? Mm. But in the same time, there will That's be. That's not going to happen, though. There will be. About you saying this, but in the in the in the background, there will be pollsters that work for political parties. There'll be the pressure from party bases, memberships, to act a certain way. And obviously, in the SNP's case, there'll be a wholly a whole different electorate for a Scottish government. They have to consider as well. That means that maybe those discussions aren't. Or there's a fear of having those discussions to look like you've caved to maybe one side of the argument or the other. These negotiations are always fraught with danger of looking like you're the one who lost the negotiation, where actually we should be saying, where was the consensus found and where was it found quickly? I think this is a fascinating part of Westminster that we probably don't explore enough. And it's, you know, and I think it's sad that David said that he's only ever walked through a voting lobby once with a Conservative MP. And it's sad in a way that we joked about our friendship having to be quiet mm. because that could be politically damaging. That should be something, should be fine to say, I'm friends with this person. I disagree with them on issues, but I'm friends with them. I've openly said my own partner was a, Labour Party member in the past, you know, and she allows me in the house, uh, you know, and and, <laughs> and share a bed with her, etc. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it's, uh, I think we could do much more, but out of interest, because obviously that's MPs. What about special advisors, pads? Like how often would you or the people you work for, obviously as, as, uh, as a special advisor do, would you have engagement with opposition front benches or MPs from opposition parties? Well, you don't have that natural interaction like you do in the Commons. So there isn't a kind of place where you would normally see a lot of the Labour pads, the Labour policy policy political advisors. During Corbyn time, so during Brexit, you know, I was in the House a bit because there were so many votes going on. Um, I did used to like get on actually with a few of the people that work for Corbyn who, you know, a bit like you said with some people you speak to, who were kind of diametrically opposed politically to, you know, people that I was working for or my own views. But I got on, you know, we used to go to pub to, to pub with them uh, relatively frequently, probably more frequently than I should have been going to the pub at all. But. <laughs> so I, I found you can get on with people. I think there is, I 100% have seen in the, in the, when you say to someone else, oh, I know so-and-so, he's actually okay, you'll get someone, you know, in the same party as you saying, oh, yeah, you shouldn't be hanging around with them. There is there is a tribalism amongst some groups in both parties, in all parties, sorry. And then I think there's probably the majority, like, you know, it doesn't bother them. But there is a there's a kind of strain in each party who do have that never kissed a Tory vibe, which I personally think is a shame because I think it's, um, uh, I don't think it makes for kind of a good functioning of Westminster. Well, you and me come from families which are politically all over the place. But right? I wonder if that's a difference. I think... I didn't get really get into politics till I was into in my mid thirties. So I'd had a total career or two really outside of Westminster. I think this, this might be unfair and we, we, we can ask someone if they come on. I think if you come up and you go into CCHQ when you're kind of 21 years old and you work in that environment where you're just running labor attack stories or vice versa, I wonder if that's a slight difference. I think, the Corbyn lot were interesting because they were outsiders in their own party. And I'd come in via vote leave, who I think it's fair to say were viewed by a few people as outsiders. Anti-establishment. I think we were anti-establishment. I think that's fair. So 
I don't know if there's any difference. I mean, that's probably unfair on people. I get on, you know, plenty of people who have been involved in the party, but I wonder if there's a, there's a strain of that group who find it harder. Cause I think a lot of people that I probably spend time with are maybe less spent their entire lives in Westminster, maybe. And what did you think of David talking about, obviously we're six days out from an announcement being laid, uh, made, sorry, about who's become the leader of the Scottish National Party, therefore first minister of Scotland. We also know that, um, this will be going out after that. What did you make of David talking about the fact that there's sort of a young group now, but also there's going to be a very different looking Scottish National Party following two very big beasts, Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon, no longer being on the stage in, in, in the front, on the front benches of, those, of that party? Uh, I thought the youthful side and the fact that maybe there'd be more coherence in terms of their outside of independence political ideology the fact that they were, they might be kind of broadly speaking all be more to the left as i think as i think as david put it that was interesting the thing that struck me is uh if you look and there was very specific circumstances for Lib, for the lib dems but you know leaders do matter and they had uh, paddy ashdown when i was young and then charlie kennedy and uh, Nick Clegg, who who at his height was a very good leader. After that, they've really struggled. And I personally think a big part of that is, this is no slight on Ed Davey, but I don't think they've had leaders with the same charisma and vision as they had before. So I think leaders can matter. So I look at the, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm as close to Scottish politics, never mind the SNPs. And I'm not, I look at those two from the outside and think, do they have what it takes to kind of, to lead a big party, which which I think is a very very difficult job. I mean, which is which is a party which is a party of anti-establishment, whilst also being being the establishment. the establishment in itself in Scotland, which I think is going to be fascinating. I I'm like you, I I think we're going to go through a very interesting time, and I certainly think this is a challenge that even the Conservative Party certainly have gone through in the last six months of 2022, and who knows beyond sort of Rishi what that will look like or how the party deals with that. I think Keir is probably the one who's sort of creating a new image mm. for the Labour Party, a new wave going forward. But I think both the Conservatives and the Scottish National Party are going to go through some patches where they've got to kind of answer that question. Who are they? What do they stand for? What's their what's their thing? You know, the Conservative Party had Brexit. What's that post-Brexit? For, late, for the Scottish National Party, independence, of course, but what outside of independence is is their thing as well? Do you, do you have a kind of view when you look at the SNP over the last month? David openly admitted that it's, you know, it's, been quite, I think, I can't remember the word to use, but tumultuous, I don't think is unfair. Do you think they, to say look worried is the right, right way, but do you think there's a change in their tone? Do you think they have any sense that this might not be good for them or or they're just kind of, um, you know, waiting for the new... I think government? there's naturally nervousness when you've had such a major figure as Nicola was, uh, who obviously clearly held a very broad coalition together and made major inroads to them electorally. I think it's natural there would be major concerns. I think... Again, likewise, you see that with the Conservative Party post Boris, there's that kind of natural red wall versus blue wall as it's been uh, divide. And I think for the Scottish National Party, there will be that concern that can any of the candidates really grab the mantle and keep, you know, the feet, the keep Westminster's feet to the fire, but also make sure that Labour don't find a back door to come back in, because essentially they're fighting over, I presume, quite a lot of the same voters. Mm. So how do they, you know, make sure they keep those the voters on their side rather than going back to Labour where they've had a bit of stability with Anna Sawa, Keir Starmer's brought calmness, he's sort of rebranded the Labour Party uh, as, you know, a party ready for government, as he would say. And 
they would argue, obviously, that they're the serious opposition. Polls would show that Labour's now narrowing quite quickly to the SNP. So I think that would be really fascinating. But I think there's definitely nervousness because they basically hold nearly all the seats in Scotland. And I think that was going to be a hard challenge anyway, but particularly when you're going through a change of leader that was, let's be honest, unexpected, and also a Labour Party that does look to be reviving. But tell me this, when I remember the day, not very long ago, when Sturgeon said she's standing down, I got a lot of texts from kind of Tory people, former Spads, current Spads, et cetera, MPs. Oh, this you know, Sturgeon's gone, this is great. And within about two days, everyone was like, I don't know, this is very good for us. Actually, it gives Labour a big opening. Maybe, you know, when we think about the next general election, maybe this is actually not very good. Do you have a sense in the parliamentary party, is this seen as a big opportunity? Is it seen as a big problem? Or is it seen as we've got no control of it, we have to let it play out and we've got a clear plan and we just follow it? I think it's fair to say that we've got no control over it, although I think there is definitely an optimism there's a real opportunity to frame the debate outside of independence and to start looking at the record of the SNP in Scotland on education, on healthcare, and the Conservatives, I think, feel that they've got, they've been kind of leading that charge for quite a while, and they feel that they can therefore bring to attention, you know, a, a look inwardly, as it were, more at what's happening uh, domestically in Scotland. However, I personally think that it's a bigger open door for Labour, because that, that Scotland is much more naturally, I would suggest, their territory. Mm. and their main opponents would be the Scottish National Party. And if Labour pick up some seats in Scotland, then it takes the pressure off having to have such a big win in England. And therefore, it would electri the electoral mass would suggest, therefore, make it more viable. There could be Labour largest party or even just a Labour majority. Um, so I think that's something the Conservatives are going to have to really make sure that they nail down kind of their alternative message and be a party of not just the union, but also of what they would do working with the UK government to improve education, to improve healthcare, to deliver levelling up, as David was talking about in Glasgow, is as important as it is in somewhere like Stoke-on-Trent. So I think that's going to be something that our party has to really grasp and it's a huge challenge for Douglas Ross. It was a really interesting episode with David. I enjoyed it and it was also, well, I think we both appreciated him coming on and being our first guest. I felt sorry for him. So he maybe looked at us and thought, do these guys know what they're doing? Um, but <laughs> I think he thinks about that me every day anyway. So. He does, I think he gave that slight impression. Thanks for listening to Inside Whitehall. Uh, if you want to give us a follow or subscribe, please do. If you want to tell us what you thought about what you heard, you can give us a rating. We really appreciate that. And you can tell us as well what you think, or you can tune in to find out what's going on via Twitter at Whitehall Pod UK. Mm -hmm.